You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Used to this new pulpit. This is quite a pulpit, wouldn't you say? Wow, it's great. Yeah. Hey, let's get our Bibles out this morning and let's turn to the Gospel of John. The last chapter, chapter 21, and we're going to read the first 14 verses. And the title of my message this morning When Jesus drops in, John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, The sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, maybe 300 feet or so, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful and amazing story. Every time we read it, Lord, we're struck by something new and different. Lord, we thank you that we serve a risen Lord, a risen Savior. 
who wants to be active in our lives today, who wants to drop in on us. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and strengthen our faith and encourage our hearts today, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. For a period of time in 2009, 2010, a man named Paul Yarrow created quite a stir among the London news media. Yarrow, usually wearing a beige sweater, kept popping in on the background of live news reports. 16 times this happened to be exact. Paul kept photobombing various on location reports. At first, Paul's identity was a mystery. He soon got the nickname, the News Raider. No one knew his motive. He kept popping in, appearing on Sky News and the BBC and Channel 4. Eventually, Paul identified himself in his mission. His appearances were to protest the cutie culture that exists in television news. In Paul's view, it isn't fair that all the TV spokespeople are slim and trim and good-looking. He says there should be room for folks like him. And for a short period of time, Paul kept popping in, making unplanned appearances to prove his point. Well, this is exactly what Jesus did after his resurrection. For a short stint of time, 40 days to be exact, Jesus kept popping in, photobombing the disciples, you could say. And these unplanned appearances made a point that we should always make room for Jesus. The man who rose from the dead that first Easter morning is still alive and he wants to be part of your life today. Acts chapter one, verse three says of Jesus, to his apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days. Jesus' sudden and surprising appearances vaporized any skepticism in the minds of his followers. Acts calls these occurrences infallible proofs. They saw him, they walked with him, they even saw his scars in his hands and face and brow and side. There was no denying it. This Jesus who hung on the cross and died from crucifixion was alive again. These divine drop-ins filled his disciples with faith and utterly convinced them that their life with Jesus would continue. And here in John chapter 21, the Lord drops in once more. John begins in verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again. And then he adds... And in this way, he showed himself. I find this intriguing language. It's as if John is going to use this particular episode as a grid for understanding all of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Apparently, the risen Christ followed a pattern. John is saying, here's how Jesus comes and goes, how he works here and there, how he does this and that why he appears at any time and in any place. You know, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he informed his disciples, and lo, I am with you always, 
even to the end of the age. There is a sense in which Jesus is always with us. In the person of the Holy Spirit, he indwells our hearts and empowers our lives and actually lives his life through us. But there is another sense in which the risen Christ is still dropping in. He promises us in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Throughout the book of Acts, there are occasions when Jesus reveals himself in a special manner and performs extraordinary works. All Christians know from experience that there are moments and places where the presence and the power of the risen Lord is expressly sensed and tangibly felt. I believe John 21 serves as a blueprint to help us recognize the risen Lord's appearances in our life and help us cooperate with his activities. This morning, I'd like to divide my comments under four headings. First, where Jesus shows up. Second, when Jesus shows up. Third, how Jesus shows up. And then fourth, why Jesus shows up. For I am convinced that the risen Christ wants to drop in on us. The Savior is willing to show up in our lives. Yet we need to know where and when and how and why to look. Well, first, I want you to notice where Jesus shows up. He engages his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's odd, but Jesus doesn't appear in a synagogue or at a religious shrine or even on the Temple Mount. Rather, Jesus reveals himself in a very regular and ordinary and nondescript spot, just on the bank there on the lake. And to guys doing something as humdrum as just fishing. Now, when you survey the dozen or so post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, you discover that, the, that all of them, without exception, occur in common, everyday places. His appearances made the occasion special, but he never revealed himself at a special occasion. When Jesus appeared to his disciples, it was always to interrupt the mundane and the routine and the daily of life. Think back to the events of that first Easter and the appearances of the risen Christ. What's so special about two dejected disciples walking down a beaten path from Jerusalem to Emmaus? Or ten frightened men clustered away in the upper room? Or a woman weeping in a garden? Or even here in our text, a handful of fishermen working their favorite bed on the lake? You know, today when you go to the place on the shoreline where it's believed that these events actually occurred, you find a little garden and a chapel there known as the Church of the Promisee. The site has been transformed into a sacred spot. It's holy ground. It's a stopover for Bible land pilgrims. But in Jesus' day, it was just a spot. There was nothing religious or special or sacred or holy about the place. It was just a plain, unmarked beach. You could call it a bore on the shore. In essence, for these disciples gone fishing, Jesus appeared to them at work. For fishing was their trade. 
This would be the equivalent of the risen Christ appearing to you tomorrow at the office or in the break room or on the assembly line or out in the fields. We expect Jesus to show up at church, at a religious venue, in a sacred place. Yet his post-resurrection appearances all occurred in secular settings. Jesus was always dropping in on everyday life in run-of-the-mill places. He invaded the daily. I'll never forget the night that Jesus met me in a saving way. It didn't happen for me in a church building. In fact, at that time in my life, I was pretty turned off to church. But I was reading my Bible, and I was learning about Jesus. I knew he was Lord, and I needed to surrender my life to his will. And so on a summer night in 1978, I remember it like it was yesterday, I rolled my car into a gravel parking lot, knelt down at a concrete picnic table. There was no stained glass, no praise band, no pastor on duty, but trust me, Jesus showed up. The living Lord forgave me of my many sins, took over my life, and I've never been the same person since. If the only time you look for Jesus is on Sunday mornings in a house of worship, no wonder you miss him. Open your eyes. He's out and about. You're liable to find Jesus at the ballpark or on the roadside or in the movie theater or hanging out in the backyard or cruising with you in your car or at the neighbor's house. Oh, not just the sacred, but the secular is his domain. Scripture says the earth is his footstool. Reminds me of an article I once read in Campus Life magazine entitled, A Tisket, A Tasket, I'm Coming Out of the Casket. <laughs> a South African man by the name of George Sogwe, he decided to fake his death he wanted to test his family and see what they would say about him after he had died. Imagine in the middle of the pastor's eulogy, the guest of honor pops up out of the coffin. Surprise? George said later he's going to keep the casket for his real funeral. And let me suggest if he keeps pulling stunts like that, it'll be sooner rather than later. But with Jesus, this was no joke. He vacated the tomb. He shed his shroud. In essence, he popped out of his casket. Jesus heard what his loved ones had said about him after he was dead. And he saw how they treated him. And I'm convinced that most Christians fall into lapses where though we know better, we treat Jesus as if he were dead, even when he's not. We forget that the Lord lives and he wants to work in our lives today. And just about the time we begin to eulogize him, Jesus pops in on us in a dynamic manner. He surprises us all over again. He shows up in new and startling ways. Years ago, when I was enrolled at the Calvary Chapel Bible College, one weekend we drove to Las Vegas to spend a few days witnessing on the streets. It was an exciting adventure. We talked to scores of folks. A few were even sober. I had a roommate of mine who was broke financially. He was down to his last quarter, one quarter in his pocket. He wasn't sure how he was even going to get back to the campus. And I'll never forget, we were in Caesar's Palace. 
when I saw Lee stick his last quarter into a slot machine. He actually laid his hands on top of the slot machine. And I'll never forget his prayer. It was something like, Lord, I know this is a den of greed and wickedness, but I also know that you're above all and you can use whatever means you choose to bless your people. And so, Lord, I ask you to take my quarter and multiply it. And then he pulled the lever on that one-armed bandit. And no kidding, the window read, not lemon, 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 not apple, 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 but seven, 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 the biblical number. 200 quarters came rumbling and tumbling out of that slot machine. And you should have seen the look on the lady's face who was at the slot machine right next to it. She almost fell off her stool. I wouldn't be surprised if she's still not there 40 years later praying over her slot machine, you know. Understand, I don't believe that God manipulates slot machines on a regular basis and advocates gambling. But I'll tell you one thing, he used that incident to show me that he was far bigger than the box I had him in. The living, loving Jesus can work anywhere, at any time, in any way he chooses. So where does Jesus show up? Anywhere. But when does Jesus show up? And here's the answer. When you least expect him, but when you most need him. When you least expect him, but when you most need him. Notice the disciples here. They're out in the water. They're busily working their nets. Jesus appears on the shore, but they don't know it's him. Perhaps it was still dark. Maybe they were a little too far out in the lake to distinguish his features. Or maybe they just didn't expect to see him and thus didn't bother to scrutinize the stranger. Jesus wants to reveal himself to us, but often we don't recognize him either. You know, it's suggested that the reason the Holy Spirit names only five of the seven fishermen in the boat is so that you and I can take our seat as the unnamed two. Often the reason we don't recognize the living Lord is because we don't expect him to pay us a visit. We don't anticipate an appearance. It reminds me of the church Easter pageant where the place director was casting the roles. One little boy insisted on being the rock in front of the garden tomb. The director asked, don't you want a speaking part? Don't you want a role where you can be a little more involved than just the rock? The little guy was adamant and said, no, I want to be that rock. Well, after the performance, the director, he was still curious about the little boy's choice of roles. And so he asked him, he said, why did you want to play the rock? That's when the little boy said, oh, it felt so good to be the first to see Jesus alive. That stone that was rolled off the mouth of the tomb was the initial movement in the movement that followed even today, Jesus' resurrection is all about moving us. Don't misunderstand. Jesus is alive and well, whether you believe in him or whether you're affected by him or not. But the stone was moved off the mouth of the tomb not to let Jesus out, but to let us in so that we could see that he's not there, that he's risen. The truth of the resurrection is still moving people to faith. It should get our faith rolling. 
the living Lord wants to reveal himself to you. And I believe he drops in on us far more than we realize. But we won't see him if we're not open and looking. And one of the biggest causes of our blindness is our own self-sufficiency. See, we don't look for Jesus because we've learned to get along, maybe even do just fine without him. You remember Peter was a fisherman by profession. He had bumbled and stumbled as a disciple, but he knew fishing. And here he's falling back on a former confidence. That is until Jesus strips him of that confidence and that self-assurance. For here the Lord orchestrates a little divinely inspired emptiness. Notice we're told at the end of verse 3, they caught nothing. Peter and the professionals had fished all night without a bite. Their fishing was a flop. Notice, God sets up his disciples here for a visitation and a revelation by allowing them to labor all night in vain. He wants them to burn up their energies, end up exhausted. It's a season of failure that primes them for his appearance. You know, nothing clouds our spiritual vision like our own successes. It's hard to see Jesus when your nets are full, when you think you've got it all under control. You're less likely to see the risen Lord when it's all about you. That's why Jesus lets his disciples try their hand at fishing, and then he sees to it that their nets are empty. Hey, when does Jesus show up? When you least expect him, but when you most need him. We'll see Jesus when we're most aware of our need for him. But then the next question is, how does Jesus show up? And the answer here is in a series of subtleties. Seldom is an appearance of Jesus announced by angelic trumpets or preceded by handwriting in the sky. Whenever the risen Christ has appeared to me, it's not been with cracks of thunder and blinding lights. You remember the occasion when God revealed himself to Elijah on Mount Horeb. At first, Elijah beheld a mighty wind that ripped open the side of the mountain. The wind was followed by an earthquake that rocked the ground, then a blazing fire. But God was not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. Finally, we're told Elijah heard a still, small voice, and that was the voice of God. See, when Jesus appears, don't expect a drum roll and some fanfare. He speaks in quiet whispers and gentle nudges and calm assurances and eternal priorities and godly desires. You know, no parent likes to yell at their kids. In a perfect world, you should be able to get a child's attention with a whisper or even a wink. Likewise, God doesn't like yelling at us to get our attention. See, Jesus comes to us through a series of subtleties. No one thing here tips off the disciples that the man on the shore is Jesus. It dawns on them gradually. The truth hits them only after a sequence of perceptions. Notice Jesus' first words. Children, have you any food? And this is the question every fisherman gets asked. In essence, he's saying, hey, you guys caught anything? 
Reminds me of the old fisherman who was asked how many fish he'd caught. He replied, well, I'll tell you, if I catch this one I'm after and two more, I'll have three. Well, the disciples, they were a little less optimistic, but they were a lot more honest. They answered the man, none. Notice, too, when Jesus addresses his disciples from the shore, he uses this word children. One commentator translates the Greek word as lads. Jesus was addressing his disciples with a phrase that communicated affection and intimacy and caring. This was the first in a string of subtleties. His greeting communicated love. You remember when Jesus first appeared to these same disciples in the upper room, the first words he spoke were, peace be with you. You know, I think some of us don't look for Jesus to appear because we're afraid of him. We fear his wrath. We think he's angry at us, that he wants to judge us. Rather than look for the risen Christ, we failed him so often, we're really trying to duck him. But believe this, you have nothing to fear when Jesus shows up. For Jesus loves you. He loves you despite your sin. In fact, if you're a believer in him, he's already forgiven you. He wants you to experience the peace that a renewed awareness of his presence brings. Don't forget these disciples. They were wayward kids. They were prodigal sons. Yet Jesus isn't ashamed to call them his lads. And this must have got them thinking. It was the first subtlety that pointed to Jesus. Perhaps they began to wonder. Maybe they even asked each other, isn't it weird for a stranger to call us friends? Isn't it weird that he's really concerned whether we've got anything to eat? Well, the second subtlety is Jesus' instructions. Notice he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. Though it might not have registered at first, the disciples had heard this before. You remember back in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus first called Peter and his pals to follow him. It was after a similar episode. They had fished all night and returned to the shore empty-handed. And that's when Jesus told Peter to row back out and throw in his nets. And they took in a miracle catch. And in a subtle way, here Jesus is reminding them of the first time they realized that he was the Son of God. Think of it. Now, three and a half years later, when Jesus re-enlists them in his service, he primes the pump by using the same circumstances. He stirs up the beginnings of their faith. You know, when Jesus brings his former work to mind, it's often his way of preparing us for a new and future work. You know, I don't think God is into reminiscing just for old time's sake. He's not sentimental without a purpose for being so. When God recalls a past victory or a past lesson, it's to prepare us for lessons and victories that lie ahead. As these fishermen were laughing and celebrating and dragging in their stretching nets, it suddenly dawns on John. It hits him. The string of subtleties finally come to a head. The tumblers all fall into place. The name children, his caring, the circumstances, now the miracle catch. The puzzle pieces come together. This is Jesus. And as soon as it hits him, John shouts out, 
It's the Lord. And I love that line. What an incredible experience it is when you suddenly recognize his purpose behind what you thought was randomness. You weren't expecting it. You didn't see it coming. But a miracle sneaked up behind you and slapped its hands over your eyes and said, guess who? By then you know it's the Lord. There's an expression among Christians, at least in my part of the country, that sort of sums up these experiences. When Jesus surprises, when the subtleties all mount up, when you conclude it's the Lord, someone will say, that was a God thing. You ever heard that? That was a God thing. And that's John's reaction here. When it dawns on him that the man on the beach is Jesus, John is the first person to shout, it's a God thing. It's the Lord. And notice John is the first of the disciples to recognize that it's Jesus. Now, he doesn't call himself here by his given name. He uses his pen name, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that points to a profound connection. The disciple that cultivated the most intimate relationship with Jesus was the first to recognize him. You recall John was the disciple that leaned in on Jesus at the Last Supper. At the cross, Jesus committed the care of his mother Mary over to John. Jesus loved and trusted John. I believe Jesus loved John so dearly because his love was so quickly returned by John. And understand the pattern here. The people who love Jesus most are usually the first to sense his presence and see his hand at work. I'm convinced Jesus is constantly dropping in on us. But if I wanna be quick to recognize him, then I need to cultivate a personal and spiritual intimacy with him. It's when I spend time with him and read his word and pray and let the Holy Spirit stir up my passions and enlighten my understanding, then I'll be quick to say, it's the Lord. I'll be the first to recognize the subtleties. Well, so far we've answered three questions. Where does Jesus show up? Anywhere. When does Jesus show up? When you least expect him, but when we need him most. And how does Jesus show up? In a series of subtleties. And now our final question, why does Jesus show up? And there are two ways to answer that question. We could put it, Jesus drops in on us to turn our ship around. This is what happened to the disciples. They were busy with the business of fishing until it dawned on them that the stranger on the shore was Jesus. That's when they immediately steered their ship in his direction. They turned their little boat about face. In fact, Peter, he couldn't even wait to turn the boat around. When he knew that it was the Lord, he left the boat behind, dove into the lake, and swam for the shore. And you got to love Peter's enthusiasm here, even while you mourn his lack of common sense. Read verse 7 again. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. Okay. Why are you putting on your coat before you jump into the lake? Obviously, Peter's only thought was, I got to get to Jesus. 
And this is what happens when you see that it's the Lord. He eclipses all your other concerns. When Jesus shows up, it creates a shift in direction. When he crosses your path, your path gets altered. Jesus comes with new bearings and new coordinates. He plots a new course. Jesus takes over the steering of our lives. I guess the second way we could put it would be when Jesus drops in, it always produces a transformational moment. Life doesn't remain the same after Jesus comes on the scene. Understand, Jesus doesn't come to endorse the status quo. Jesus rocks the boat. He comes to do a new work. Our Lord is into transformation. He works big changes. Raymond Donovan served as the Secretary of Labor under President Reagan. Donovan tells about a trip that he once made on Air Force One with the former president. Initially, he was in the rear of the plane with the other staff, but about halfway through the flight, he was asked to join the president for lunch in his private quarters. Well, Ray Donovan, he straightened his tie. He thought how important he was to be asked to have lunch on Air Force One with the President of the United States. And to top it all off, when he walked into the President's stateroom, the red phone, the hotline, it suddenly rang. Ray Donovan thought, wow, what a moment to be with the leader of the free world. He's about to deal with a national emergency, and I'm going to be right by his side. Well, Reagan calmly picked up the phone, listened for a few short minutes, and then he asked, he said, what are my options? Donovan's heart skipped a beat. He said his mind started to race back and forth to the possible international scenarios that might be brewing. Finally, the president answered, okay, I'll have the iced tea. <laughs> and he hung up the hotline. So much for Ray's part in a transformational moment. But you can be sure that when Jesus invites you for a meal, hey, he has very sensitive and strategic issues to discuss with you. Jesus always deals with matters of eternal significance. When the disciples came ashore, they found a fire of coals and broiling fish. And this wasn't your typical fish fry. Here's where the Greek words translated coals and fish come in handy. Coals is the word anthrakia. It's the same word used for the fire of coals that Peter huddled over several weeks earlier on the night when he denied the Lord. And the word fish is apsarion. It's the word John used to describe the two fish with which Jesus fed the 5,000. And you remember it was immediately after that miracle of multiplication that Peter had recommitted himself to Jesus. You remember Jesus asked his disciples that they were going to leave him like the multitudes had done. But Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, the point is, is that when the risen Christ dropped in on Peter, he dropped right into his heart. Jesus met his failed disciple right where he was at with the coals. He took Peter back to the night of his defeat. With the fish, he reminds Peter of his commitment to still follow. And when Jesus appears to you and me, truth comes out in the open.
Skeletons topple out of the closet. Our smoke screens dissipate. The real issues begin to surface. When Jesus drops in, he forces us to face the truth about ourselves. Jesus can't turn our ship around until we recognize we're headed in the wrong direction. I had a friend of mine who used to drop in unannounced. Early in our marriage, he would just drop by the house and he'd surprise us with his visit. He'd show up, he'd knock on the door. If the door was unlocked, he'd just walk right in. Well, this didn't happen but maybe one or two times before my newlywed wife's gentle coaxing prompted me to have a little talk with my friend. I explained to him that this was no longer proper protocol. But realize, this is exactly how Jesus rolls. The risen Christ has no qualms about dropping in on us unannounced. He comes when we least expect him, but most need him. Jesus loves us, and he wants to invade our lives and turn our ship around. In verse 12, Jesus is standing on the beach when he invites his disciples, come and eat breakfast. And it's striking to me that Jesus invited his disciples to breakfast, to the very first meal of the day. The whole experience here in John 21 happened early in the morning. In fact, most of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances occurred in the morning. His first drop-in to Mary outside the tomb was at dawn, the break of day. It's appropriate that all this in John 21 dawns on the disciples at dawn. Whenever Whenever Jesus drops in, It marks a brand new day. Recall how we divide history. There's B.C. and A.D. B.C. stands for before Christ. And of course, B.C. is also the name of a powder that relieves headaches. And to me, that's very fitting because my life before Christ was nothing but one big headache. A.D., though, is a Latin abbreviation. Anno Domini, it means the year of our Lord. And it was the resurrection of Jesus that marked a new era, a new day on earth, a time now influenced and dominated by the risen Christ. And whether you're 13 or 43 or 83, when the risen Christ drops in on your life, it marks the beginning of a brand new day. Hey, Jesus invites us to breakfast, not nightcaps. And notice again in verse 12, Jesus says, come. What a wonderful word, come. Author John Phillips makes a big deal of this word, come. He writes, come. It is the grandest word in the gospel. It dissolves distance. It brings saint and sinner alike to him who takes away sin and sadness and replaces them with joy and gladness. For centuries prior to Christ, man had been separated from God. We were barred from God's presence. In fact, when God revealed himself to Israel on Mount Sinai, they roped off the mountain so that no one would wander too close. Imagine, God was off limits. But what Jesus did on the cross caused God to bury the hatchet with us. God is no longer angry with man over his sin. For Jesus paid the price, and he has won for us God's forgiveness. And today, just as he did on the shore that morning, Jesus invites whosoever will to come. 
This one marvelous word ends our imposed separation. You and I have been invited by the risen Christ to come to him. So, if you're not a Christian, here's Jesus' word to you today. Come. Come to me, he says. Come, and I'll wash away your sins. And if you are a Christian, yes, Jesus is always with you, but he also wants to make his presence to you and in you known in a personal way. He wants and he's ready to drop in on you. That's why we should prepare our hearts with faith and with anticipation so that when the risen Christ does drop in, you and I will be the first to say, it's the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for this occasion so many years ago and what a timely lesson it is to us today. You're a good God. You're a wonderful Savior. You're a living Lord. And you didn't just rise from the dead 2,000 years ago, but you're alive today and you're still dropping in on your people. Lord, help us to be open. Help us to have faith. Help us to anticipate. And Lord, when you drop into our lives and reveal yourself to us, may we be quick to say, it's the Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Sandy Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Sandy's teaching ministry by visiting sandyadams.org.